0: Lot of people here. Um, hi, everybody. Um, I'm sorry I have a cold, so my drug of choice tonight is Walgreens Cough Drops. Can I, can I have one? You want one? Yeah. That's, that's always an exciting way to start a show. No, nothing but high energy from here on out. Who's here to party? Yeah! yeah. We're not serving any drugs tonight. Sorry. The
1: <laughs> sorry. only drug is fun and alcohol.
0: My name is Sarah Lohman, and I write the blog Four Pounds Flower, Historic Astronomy, which is all about fun, food, history, crazy, debauchery, learning through consumption, which is what we're going to do tonight. This is Jonathan Soma. Hello,
1: I'm Jonathan Soma. Uh, I run the Brooklyn Brainery. We teach classes about anything and everything down in Carroll Gardens and Prospect Heights these days. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know we're like appropriately mellow for the start of this show which yeah. which is all about illicit substances drugs controlled substances i'm gonna talk first and i'm gonna talk about high victorians and how much victorians love doing drugs Um, then we have a little little, little break
1: I just talk about weed all night long. I'm gonna talk about it weed too. <laughs> it never stops. Every like, she covers like 80 different drugs. I'm just like weed and weed, 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 weed
0: and weed, 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 weed,
1: weed, weed. weed, weed, weed. so weed,
0: weed, weed. So we're gonna talk about weed. How does that sound to you? <laughs> I just want to set the scene. The scene is the 19th century, and this is the era where many of our kind of um, most illicit substances were discovered, isolated, mass-produced, except it was an era where, there was, uh, where they were not illicit yet, there, where there was no control of these substances, and quite the contrary, they were viewed in a very positive way. We didn't have a lot of very effective medicines, but beyond that, they were seen um, as medicine for the soul. Let me give you an example. I'm gonna read you a quote from um, the boy's own book. <laughs> Um, this book was published in 1830, 1829, excuse me. And it's essentially like, you know that one that came out a couple years ago that's in Amazon that's like the boy's book of blah, 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 and there's like all kinds of activities inside? That, that new book was based on this book from 1829. It's full of like science problems and like experiments and crafts and games and things like that. And one of the entries is all about laughing gas. <laughs> I know, I like this picture a lot too. One, because it also shows like how they're um, inhaling the laughing gas, which was either through a pig's bladder or like a varnished silk sack. and also, everyone, of course, is so happy. Little uh, kind of a digressive side note. See the little guy there back in the corner? That's actually, it is a boy. Boy's hair was parted in the middle and girl's hair. No, 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 I take that back. It's a girl. Girl's hair was parted in the middle. Boy's hair was parted on the side, but boys and girls wear the same clothes until they were like three or four years old. So girls in the middle, boys on the side. So here is what the boys' Own group book has to say about laughing gas. Um, the effects differ greatly. Basically, it starts by just saying you, you, know, you um, have to evaporate it over water and then you put it in a pig's bladder and then you, you suck it in like, like you know, sucking helium from a balloon. And it says the effects differ greatly according to the constitutions of the persons by whom it is, it, it is respired. In general, however, they are highly agreeable. Exquisite sensations of pleasure, an irresistible propensity to laughter, a rapid flow of vivid ideas, singular thrilling in the toes, fingers, and ears, a strong incitement to muscular motions are the ordinary feelings produced by it. We have read of one gentleman who, after breathing the gas some time, threw the bag from him and kept breathing on laboriously with an open mouth, holding his nose with his fingers without the power to remove them. Although aware of his ludicrousness of the situation, he had a violent inclination to jump over chairs and tables and seemed so light that he was going to fly. What is exceedingly remarkable is that the intoxication thus produced, instead of being succeeded by the debility subsequent to the intoxication by fermented liqueurs, does on the contrary generally render the person who takes it cheerful and high-spirited for the remainder of the day. This isn't like, it's in a kid's book. It's in like a book (laughs) for teenagers. And I just, I had to include a couple pictures because all of them amused me so much. (laughs) Like you can see, like it's this really high society thing. Like everybody's doing it. Um, Here's an 18th century drawing. And he's farting because farting's funny no matter what century it is, so. And it's kind of interesting. And it's like, they're all mixed company too. It's like men and women could do this together and it was like a riotous afternoon. So again, does it give you a, yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess we should go get some nitrous oxide. So it gives you a sense of like the attitudes, not just with something like laughing gas, um, but the main drug of 19th century was opium. And opium had many forms. By the end of the 19th century, you could shoot it, snort it, drink it, smoke it, whatever, pick your poison. We had opium in all sorts of colors. Um, And um, laudanum was the most common way that opium was consumed. And laudanum was actually medicinal. And it was only about 10% opium and the 90% alcohol, water. And it often mixed like sugar, cinnamon, nutmeg, cardamom, coriander with it, which actually sounds delightful. And that was used to treat, like, it was a modern-day painkiller. It was called um, a gift from the gods. Because, again, we really didn't have anything that could, that could uh, kill pain in that way. Not only that, but it did work against dysentery. Because heroin is also an opiate. And we all remember from spotting that it, you do remember from spotting, it constipates. So when we're talking dysentery and cholera, and we don't have antibiotics, if you can constipate someone, you can probably save their life. So it was an effective medicine. It was also used recreationally. Um, Morphine tea parties, this comes from actually a 1902 reference in a British medical journal. Let me read you this quote. Um, This is from this British British medical journal. Our attention has been drawn to an article in one of the popular weekly journals entitled, Morphine Tea Parties Given by Women. The fashion, which is said to have originated in Paris, consists of of the formation of what may be termed a morphine club. A number of ladies meet about four o'clock every afternoon, tea is served, servants are sent out of the room, the door is locked, the guests bare their arms, and the hostess produces a small hypodermic syringe with which she administers an ejection to each person in turn. If one ejection is not sufficient to satisfy any particular guest, a second or even a third is given. Whether this is merely a piece of sensational journalism or whether it represents unexaggerated fact, we have no convenient means of ascertaining. Probably, however, it is only too true that alcoholism, morphinism, cocaineism, and other supposed means of getting beyond a monotonous daily life are becoming increasingly prevalent among women. And it is only too true that there is no ruin so utter as a woman's ruin from such causes. So the article is interesting in two ways, because it talks about that this morphine is being used really recreationally by groups of women who are getting together and using this drug in kind of a pleasurable fashion. And again, like a lot of artists were using morphine, were using heroin. Um, It wasn't until we started seeing addiction, until we began identifying what addiction was, that people then really started to look at the flip side. And it's really interesting that they commented on, you know, these are like rich housewives, and they are really bored, and they're abusing drugs. Um, however, jewelers like really jumped on the idea of the morphine tea party, and so they started offering these really beautiful syringes that were like gold and silver and jeweled and things like that. So there was a lot of recreational drug use in the 19th century by people of all classes. In fact, drugs in a way were for the um, upper classes. Alcohol was for the poor people. You were drinking gin. You were drinking whiskey. But if you could afford it, you were abusing something fancier like morphine. (laughs) A really common form to get what we today call illicit substances is in medicine. Things like morphine and cocaine were really cheap ingredients. So they were used to treat things like toothaches. (laughs) And again, by the end of the 19th century, you could get cocaine in as snuff, in shootable form, in candy, in gum, in tea. Like, you could pick to have your cocaine any way you want. But it was often found in health tonics, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit more. Cocaine comes from coca leaves. Um, That's the coca tree there. The coca tree is native to South and Central America. You primarily find it in the Andes, and it's traditionally chewed by people who are from the Andes, especially people in Bolivia. Um, The use of it dates back thousands and thousands of years, um, at least um, 2,500 years, if not more. You do chew it. You shove it into your cheeks like chewing tobacco. And the first Spanish conquistadors um, accounted it being used. And they said that it was often uh, chewed with ground seashells or wood ash. You need an alkaline substance to release the, the, co- the coca, the cocaine that's in the leaves. However, in its natural state from chewing on these leaves, you essentially got a buzz that was equivalent to drinking a cup of coffee. That's what it's been compared to. Now, um, the Spanish that came and conquered these areas were very suspect of this, of what they identified as a drug habit. So they banned the chewing of coca. But then they also enslaved the local people and forced them to work in silver mines. And they found out that they worked better if they were chewing the coca than if they were, so they relented and said, "Oh, you can chew your coca," but it's actually it's more than the drug use. It's more than the little caffeine bump. Um, it has some properties that are really important to people who live in the live in the Andes. Um, One is that it is a vasodilator, which it means that it expands the air sacs in your lungs. So when you're living in mountainous areas where the air is very thin, it actually helps you deal with those conditions. Um, Additionally, it's very high in vitamin B. It's very high in calcium. Um, it also contains a chemical that allows the body to stabilize blood sugar. And the, Ande- the Andean diet was mostly based around potatoes. And now scientists believe that that diet would have been malnutritious for them without also the vitamins and the minerals, actually, they were getting from this coca and alkaline combination. So it's really important to the people in the Andes. And traditionally, it was true there. Traditionally, it still is to this day, except a small digression. Um, oh. This is my slide for it being ancient. Um, (laughs) I missed it. Um, Chewing coca leaves is illegal. Uh, internationally. The United Nations has banned it. And there's a lot of protests going on in Bolivia right now to try to get this, you know, indigenous means of nutrition back, this, this tradition in their country. There is one uh, American company that is still allowed to um, produce and process leaves. So but we'll get to that a little bit later. So for a very long time, not much was said about coca leaves. Um, once they were transported back to Europe, when they dried out, they didn't have the same effects that they did fresh. It wasn't until the 1850s that someone wrote a um, an essay essentially um, talking about the benefits of coca leaves, that it kind of, um, that people started taking notice of it. And in 1859, um, cocaine was isolated from coca leaves and was being produced in its pure form. Um, this, is, this is medicinal cocaine, and this is actually from, um, y- there was a, a cabin um, in Antarctica. I can't remember the trip, but there was a, a trip of an expedition to Antarctica and they built a little cabin and they were stranded there for a couple years. And um, there is kind of a historic expedition that's going there now because a lot of the things that were left there, um, I believe it was in 1914 that they were finally rescued. All this hundred year old shit is still still there. And they like have those like tins of biscuits and like canned food and cocaine. So this is from like <laughs> the Antarctic Historical Society. So, um, they could get it pure, as you saw. You could get it in medicine. But it was also kind of just used as like um, a health tonic. Um, coca wines became really popular. Um, Vin Mariani uh, was red wine that had coca leaves steeped in it. Um, and actually, on their website, they're trying to get the business going again. Like they're trying to <laughs> start reproducing this wine. Look it up, vinmariani.com. So this came out of Italy, and it was so popular that an American company wanted to make a knockoff. So this guy named Dr. Pemberton, who was a pharmacist in Atlanta, designs his own French coca wine. Um, That is the same thing. It's like red wine with some other kind of herbs and aromatics steeped with coca leaves. But in 18... In 1884, oh, no, excuse me, in 1885, um, Atlanta and Fulton County decide to test out prohibition, and they ban the sale and consumption of alcohol for two years. So he kind of uses this opportunity to create a temperance drink. Do you know who, what I'm talking about? Coca-Cola. So although this version of Coca-Cola, which is advertised as, it's an intellectual beverage, um... (laughs) It's a nerve stimulant. And he's selling syrup to soda fountains, which at this time we're also seen as medicinal. You had a drugstore, you'd have a soda fountain where you had these different syrups that were different remedies, and you put um, seltzer water in it and served it. So this was especially like for headaches it was recommended and if you needed a little like pep. Because even though it was an alcoholic, it still had cocaine in it. <laughs> and it still had caffeine in it, too. So... Um, Coca-Cola really kind of took over the world when they started bottling it, because for a long time they were selling the syrup, and for most of the 19th century, the owners said, why do we want to bottle it? Like, it's much cheaper and easier to transport and sell the syrup. So the first company that they came to them and wanted to bottle it, they were just like, yeah, yeah, we'll sell you the syrup and you do whatever you want with it. And that was this kind of cool looking first bottle over here. Um, But... They realized that it would bring Coca Cola to a lot of different markets, not just soda fountains, and they changed their advertising, not just as a remedy. Now it was just going to be a refreshing drink that you can pick up at a gas station or at a grocery store, or at the corner store, or wherever you wanted to. It was decocafied in 1903. And this is probably in anticipation of the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, which so much teases me. He's smiling right now because I cannot get through a lecture without mentioning John Harvey Kellogg or the 1906 (laughs) Pure Food or Drug Act which maybe one day I'll do a lecture just on those two things because I love them so much. Um, the 1906 and Drug Act was the forerunner to the FDA. And this law was the first law to prevent the adulteration of food and also to prevent false advertising too. So they de because one of the things under that law was it started naming controlled substances, substances that were illegal to put into food or were otherwise controlled, and cocaine was going to be on that list. So they got rid of cocaine. But there was still a drug in Coca-Cola after the cocaine was taken out, caffeine. And the big deal, yay, caffeine. <laughs> the big deal about caffeine and Coca-Cola was, um, well, here's Dr. Wiley. <laughs> He's pretty awesome, and what a name, right? Right. So Dr. Wiley was a chemist, and he was kind of appointed by the government to head up the Food and Drug Act. He was this really big advocate. He made huge changes in the safety of our food. Um, he was the head of what newspapers termed the poison squad, where teams of volunteers would consume canned food and see how sick it made them, and he would write it down. <laughs> Nobody died, so that's good. Um, he's so, he sues Coca-Cola. Um, the case is called—wait, it's got a great name. It's called the U.S. government versus 40 barrels and 20 kegs of Coca-Cola. <laughs> because it's is happening in 1911, and he says the issue here is that tea and coffee are adult drinks. But Coca-Cola, soda pop, this is the first drink that has caffeine in it that was being sold to children. That their advertising was gearing it towards children. And so that was it. It's, is, is this an illicit substance for someone that's below a certain age? So they end up settling on a court, and the court orders Coca-Cola to reduce the amount of caffeine in their drink by half, and also they are not allowed to use children in their advertising, which they actually, they don't until 1986 is the first time that a child appears in a Coca-Cola ad, but they find the little workaround. <laughs> ding. Ding, ding. So they started using Santa Claus to appeal to children instead of actual children, pretty smart. (laughs) So here's what's interesting for me to end the story of Coke and then I have one other thing I want to tell you about. Um, Coca-Cola when it was ordered to reduce its caffeine content had about 65 milligrams of caffeine per 12 ounce bottle. Today it has about 35 grams of milligrams. It has not uh, put more caffeine in. Let's look at that in the modern day grand scheme of things. Espresso has 480 milligrams of caffeine per 12 ounces, but who's drinking 12 ounces of espresso? (laughs) A Starbucks coffee has 194. A Red Bull, which you can get at the bar tonight, has 120 milligrams of caffeine per 12 ounces. Um, right in the middle, we've got Monster, which is 105. Joke Cola is 72, and that is the most amount of caffeine that the government allows in, caf- in um, soda today is um, about 72 milligrams. And then Coca-Cola is all the way down to the bottom, just above Sprite and 7-Up, which are caffeine-free. So I thought that was interesting. So... <laughs> Coca-Cola is one sort of illicit substance from the 19th century. I want to talk about another that has a much more mysterious reputation. Absinthe. Absinthe is legal. How many people know that? About half of you. Absinthe is totally, totally legal, and it is the same absinthe that you could have bought 100 or 200 years ago. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, Hubbub, 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 hubbub. So what is absinthe? Um, Absinthe in a lot of ways is like gin. It is a neutral green spirit that has been infused, in this case, with herbs. Gin has a lot of aromatics, a lot of spices, and particularly juniper. Um, Absinthe's primary flavoring comes from anise, and it'll be anise, licorice, star anise, like a lot of those kinds of fennel-even flavors in it. And then it's also known to have wormwood. Irmwood, wormwood is a very kind of bitter herb, too. And actually, we have some wormwood tonight. So if you're interested in smelling it, tasting it a little bit, getting a little sense of it, um, at the end of the talking, it kind of back to Jen. So it is an infusion, neutral grain spirit, infused with... Wormwood. here it is. It's a plant that's been used medicinally for a very long time. It's bitter like quinine is bitter. And actually quinine like that you have in tonic that's anti-malarial, wormwood is also anti-malarial too. It's called the poor man's quinine, whatever that means. (laughs) It's green from chlorophyll. uh, It uses a lot of fresh herbs and dried herbs, so the chlorine actually seeps out into the alcohol, and over time, it does in fact turn brown. These are vintage 150-year-old bottles of um, the earliest commercial absinthe Pernod, and they turn brown over time, and that's actually considered desirable, too. It's just a sign of aging. So what happens when you pour a glass of absinthe? Well, there is a particular way to serve it. Um, It is a very, very strong alcohol. It is generally 130 to 140 proof. So it's very, very strong. So you cannot just, well, you should not (laughs) just drink it straight. Um, So traditionally, you have a special serving device, an absinthe spoon that goes over the top of the glass, and you put a sugar cube on top of that. And then, um, like I showed you, you can either, you can drip the water in a lot of ways, but When you went to an absinthe bar in the 19th century, you had a device like this that allowed a very thin stream of water to pour over the sugar cube, dissolve it, and then when the cold water hits the absinthe, it gets cloudy. Now this happens because in addition to chlorophyll, there are a lot of essential oils in the absinthe um, that will, uh, I'm not the science person. They come out of solution
1: because there's not enough
0: alcohol. Yes, they come out of the solution because there's not enough alcohol. (laughs) So it's like it's like salad dressing. Like you've got it that it's all, when it's in alcohol, it's all evenly mixed together. But when it's not, thank you, an emulsion, that's the word I was looking for. So it's an emulsion. And when you put water in it, it kind of messes up the emulsion and it appears cloudy because the essential oils are separating from the alcohol and the water. See, I'm not too bad at science, my tiny woman brain. So. <laughs> just kidding. Absinthe is invented in 1797 in French-speaking Switzerland. It was invented as a health tonic by um, one or two women. It's a little bit unclear and was sold locally. The history of absinthe kind of got rewritten. Um, It it is currently said, or most people say, that it was invented by a a doctor ordinaire, but the most recent scholarship is saying that that's not true. It was actually kind of a cover-up, actually speaking of women, that... Having absinthe origins being in female medicine smacked too much of, like, witchcraft. So people were uncomfortable with that being the origin, so they wanted to ascribe it to maleness and science. That is the general thinking. Um, a guy came along and bought it, and this guy uh, first partnered up with Perno, And Pernod, as I mentioned, was the first commercially produced absinthe. It was really a regional drink for a long time in little different towns of France and a couple towns in Switzerland. But then in the 1830s, the France went to, uh, the France, the France went to the Africa and started (laughs) colonizing. And the the French army prescribed everybody to take canteens of absinthe mixed with water because it was anti-malarial. So all these soldiers went to war in the 1830s, they were all drinking absinthe, they really liked it. France was generally a wine drinking culture and this was like something different and exciting and strong. So when they came back, everyone started drinking it. The soldiers were drinking it in the bars, the artists started drinking it in different neighborhoods and then the kind of bougie class in the middle was like, well everyone's doing it, I guess I will too. So between, by the 18, really post 1830s and through the end of the century, um, between 4 and 6 p.m., that was called the green hour. And that's when everybody, every male and women would go to the cafes and they'd all go out and drink absinthe. Absolutely every, every, everybody was drinking it. Now, here's what happens. So we go from something that everybody loves and everyone is drinking. And then Manet, late 19th century impressionist painter, starts going into these bars and he's painting and he's painting pictures of people who don't look like they're really enjoying the absinthe. (laughs) This one was not as controversial as this one, because even though he doesn't look so bad to us, he is a straight up like bum, like he's a street bum. So he starts painting these very real pictures that remove the glamor of absinthe and people start to get worried about what effect absinthe is having on people. And that in 1911 there is a very sensationalist murder. There is a man um, who, after drinking a bottle of a bottle of absinthe, <laughs> went home and murdered his pregnant wife and two daughters. Bad, right? It's, it happens in Switzerland. Um, it happens in a wine-drinking region of Switzerland, a wine-producing region, and so what they don't mention is that, yeah, he had that absinthe, but he also had creme de menthe, cognac, seven glasses of wine, coffee with brandy, and then another liter of wine before he went home and murdered his wife and children. Damn. Here's the thing, though. So now people are believing that the wine industry really kind of jumped on this. Because there had just been a blight in the late 19th century that killed a lot of grape vines in Europe. And they were just kind of getting back on their feet. But while wine was expensive and unavailable during this blight, um, people turned to absinthe. And so everyone was drinking absinthe, and no one wanted wine. So the wine industry kind of like chipped in to villainize absinthe so that they could start selling more wine. I mean, aside from that, I mean, this really sparks the kind of, like, fear of absinthe. There's all this kind of, well, it has a lot to do with the temperance movement. The language used about absinthe at the turn of the century, that you're going to go home and murder your wife, that you'll be a bum, that, you know, you'll be useless to society, you'll ruin your life, devils, demons, all of that. That's no difference than what any of people in the temperance movement were saying about any alcohol at this time. Remember, at its base, absinthe is just really high-proof alcohol. So it was just being targeted the same way that every alcohol was being targeted leading up to prohibition. After the murder, though, in 1912, it's banned in Switzerland. A couple years later, it's banned in France. A couple years later, it's banned in, um, in 1912, actually, it's banned in America. It wasn't hugely popular here, but in New Orleans it was. It was, I mean, that was kind of French America. People were using it there. Here's what's interesting. In 1912, the Pure Food and Drug Act is amended. And one of the things it does is mentions caffeine as an illicit substance. And to this day, caffeine has to be mentioned if it's included uh, in an ingredients list. If you're drinking something with caffeine, it has to be listed. Um, And It also has one of the other amendments is that it bans the importation of any products made with wormwood. That is the only law banning absinthe in America. Now, in addition to the reasons I already mentioned, there's kind of two other, eh, maybe just one other kind of interesting note on um, two. Absinthe making you crazy. One, okay, remember Prohibition, bathtub gin, and all those stories about how they're like using ethyl alcohol and like throwing juniper berries in it? Gin was easy to manufacture because it had those aromatics that could cover the flaws of nasty alcohol, and you know, it would kill people. It's dangerous alcohol it with absinthe, it's got all those herbs in it. So you can use bad alcohol and just throw shit in there, throw some licorice in there and make it seem like absinthe. And so because absinthe was so popular in Europe and in, South America, in Southern America, um, cheap absinthe was being produced and it was being colored with copper. So new scholarship is now suggesting that a lot of the madness associated with absinthe was coming from cheap absinthe and people were getting copper poisoning. Additionally, uh, an absinthe scholar just pointed out that a lot of crazy people drank absinthe, and (laughs) that might have added some fuel to the fire. But there is kind of one grounds, real grounds for believing the absence makes you insane and this is this com- compound called thujone. Thujone is a toxic compound in wormwood that if consumed in sufficient quantities can poison you. And part of this poisoning is hallucination, is hallucinations and acting crazy and things like that. However, this guy his name is Ted Bro, and he lives in New Orleans, and he is like the absinthe super scientist. He is a chemist and a microbiologist. He got interested in absinthe. He began collecting antique and vintage bottles and analyzing them in his lab. And he essentially put together a, um, a petition to the government that said it is impossible to consume enough absinthe, to it distilled absinthe, to consume enough thujone to poison you, that in the distilled final product there was not enough thujone Joan, even in these 100-year-old absinthe, even in contemporary absinthe, um, to make you hallucinate, that it was simply a myth. But then once he and his future, his business partner, started looking into the law, they realized that the only ban was in the importation of absinthe. There was no ban on making absinthe domestically, so they started making absinthe. And they, they did, they submitted to the government and the government said, we have no problem with this. So Lucid is the first absinthe that was made in America. It was released in 2007 and then within another year, we also did away with abandoning the importation of absinthe. So in a way, it was never truly illegal other than prohibition, which um, you know, made all alcohol illegal. Absinthe specifically was not illegal. So if you haven't had absinthe, go out and give it a try. If you don't like licorice, You're probably not going to like absinthe, to be honest. There are a couple. There's one being made out of um, Delaware called Delaware Phoenix that is a bit more herbal and a bit tones the licorice down a little bit. This one, loosed, it is fun because it's the original, and it is really easy to find. Most liquor stores that have a good selection have this. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: All right, so I should have talked about this when I first got on the stage, but you might notice that I have a shirt, and it says, I take drugs seriously. Um, It was... It was floated to me that this whole talk was based around this shirt, but it wasn't. But this shirt is actually my mom's shirt uh, from when she was in pharmacy school in the 80s. And I found a picture the other day of my grandfather wearing it. So really like the knowledge of drugs has been passed down through the ages. I don't really smoke weed. It happens maybe biannually. And that either means every two years or twice a year. And it's somewhere in there. Um, so instead I learned about eating it. Um, now here's the thing. This talk is Alice B. Toklas and the Mysterious Case of the Famous Pot Brownies. I went on a quest to reproduce an incredibly famous pot brownie recipe, supposed pot brownie recipe, by supposedly Alice B. Toklas. And your question is, who the hell is Alice B. Toklas and why do you keep saying her whole name? So, um, she was Gertrude Stein's life partner, and the person in front is Gertrude Stein, and the person in back is Alice B. Toklas, and that's kind of how they lived their life. Um, Gertrude Stein, super famous writer. Um, Alice B. Toklas, not, she didn't do much. Um, (laughs) But what her most important role was being the life partner of Gertrude Stein. In uh, 1933, a book was published called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. You would assume that it was produced, written by Alice B. Toklas. It was not. It was written by Gertrude Stein from the point of view of Alice B. Toklas, and it was basically a biography of Gertrude Stein written by Gertrude Stein but in the second person masquerading as an autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. (laughs) So that's what her life was like. So then in uh, 1954, Random House was like, Alice B. Toklas. This was after uh, Gertrude Sina passed away. They were like, Alice B. Toklas, write a memoir. And Alice B. Toklas was like, well, I apparently already wrote an autobiography, so I feel kind of weird writing a memoir. How about I write you a cookbook instead? And they were like, that's fine. That's all right. So what she did was she wrote that, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook. But she didn't really write it. What happened was a few months before her book was due, she was like, oh shit, I've been lazy. I'm like 70 something. I haven't gotten together a bunch of recipes. I better hit my friends up for some recipes. So she hit up her friend, Brian Geisen, and she was like, Brian, help me out. I need a recipe. We can assume that this guy knows how to have a good time and contributed a certain special recipe to the cookbook. Um, Now, the famous recipe supposedly that comes from the Alice B. Toklas cookbook is for pot brownies. Um, If you start Googling Alice B. Toklas, it'll autocomplete with pot brownies, but it turns out there's not a pot brownies recipe in there at all. It's a hashish fudge recipe. Um, Oh, wow, it starts talking about Baudelaire immediately. Um, So uh, here, maybe you can't read all that. I'll put the big part, big the best stuff in big print. This is the food of paradise. It might provide an entertaining refreshment for a ladies' bridge club or a chapter meeting of their Daughters of the American Revolution. Euphoria and brilliant storms of laughter, ecstatic reveries and extensions of one's personality on several simultaneous planes are to be complacently expected. So that sounds exciting. I know my bridge club could really use some weed. So... The the other confusing thing, okay, so they're not pot brownies. They're fudge. But what what do you think is the most important ingredient in fudge? Yeah, the people who said butter are right. But I was always like, chocolate, maybe peanut butter. Yeah, so this fudge has uh, one teaspoon of black peppercorns, a whole nutmeg, four sticks of cinnamon, uh, some coriander, and dates, figs, almonds, and peanuts. Doesn't really seem like fudge, I don't know why there's a vanilla bean in that picture, don't hold it against me. Um, And then there's butter, and there's sugar, and then there's one incredibly important ingredient, and that is a bunch of cannabis sativa. That's marijuana. So the question is, the first question, um, is what the hell is cannabis sativa? So, it actually goes into somewhat detail about the different kinds of marijuana you can get. Um, but there's cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. And those are the two main, I guess, they're species um, of, the, of the plant. So they look a little bit different, but that's not really what's important here. Um, that's sativa, that's indica. But what's, what's important is when you smoke it or you eat it, what does it do to your body? So cannabis sativa, um, they're tall, thin plants from tropical regions like Thailand or Colombia. Um, and it kind of gives you like a, a head buzz. So it's more of a cerebral high Um, you start to lose your ability to uh, keep track of time, Um, you get the giggles, altered sensory perception. Uh, On the other hand, it's kind of messing with your world so it has a tendency to make you a little bit more anxious. So it's more of the, the creative weed that gets you kind of excited about things and then excited about the fact that you think police are gonna come into your door, but that's okay. On the other hand, you have indica, and those are short, dense plants um, from more mountainous regions. Um, So places like Afghanistan and Tibet are where indica comes from. I mean, it's basically sleepy weed, so you can be sleepy like that sleepy cat. Um, You get a a body high, so you get really relaxed, and you just kind of lay back. And this is a strain of marijuana that is better for things like pain relief um, and... Just like the, the medicinal properties are more so in indica as opposed to sativa. Um, but why? Why are they different? Um, what, what causes the split between these two things? And if you're buying fancy weed, you know there are a million different strains, and it's you know some of them will make you sleepy and some of them will make you excited. And what we need to do to understand that is cannabinoids. So cannabinoids, um, in case you can't tell, that's a science word. Um, And it's the compounds that are in cannabis, oddly enough, um, that end up affecting your body. They're called cannabinoids because we first isolated them outside of the body. And we were like, well, we found this thing. It's THC. It comes from cannabis. Let's call all the compounds that act like it cannabinoids. There are also cannabinoids in your body. Um, We found those later. They're called endocannabinoids. But this is THC. It's marijuana's most famous contribution to society um, tetrahydrocannabinol Um, the reason why something like THC can act on your body is because of neurotransmitters so like I said before (laughs) there are cannabinoids in your body and they'll do things like they'll walk to the the part of your body and be like hey time to get hungry or hey time to kind of lose track of time or hey time to do something else Um, And so when THC gets in your body, it just gets on every telephone it can find and it's like, hey, 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 get sleepy. Hey, get excited. Hey, time to get confused. And it really just overloads all of your senses with all kinds of stuff. So the two receptors that it's affecting are the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Um, CB1 are in your brain and CB2 are kind of associated with the immune system. And they're found throughout your body in places like the intestines and all kinds of stuff. So CB1 are the important receptors. Um, Basically, they're everywhere. Uh, They control appetite and hypothalamus. Um, Hippocampus is learning, uh, sensation. Uh, So when your sensations change, your sense of time, or you get disoriented, or uh, your nausea is calmed, that's all THC acting on your CB1 receptors. There are also these other cannabinoid receptors, (laughs) CB2. For people on the podcast, there's a picture of CB2 on the screen. Um, So they're not exactly sure what something like THC does to the CB2 receptors. Um, They think it might calm inflammation. So when people will, for example, smoke weed in order to calm inflammation, they think it might be the CB2 receptors, but mostly people have been like, THC and the CB1 receptors really fuck your brain up, and then they make everything go crazy and you get high, so we're not really going to study these other immune system ones. So it's kind of a bummer. But Who here has heard of any other cannabinoids besides THC? Right? A few people. It turns out there are a bunch of them. All we ever hear about is THC, though. A really important one is CBD, cannabidiol, which I always pronounce as cannabidiol, because I don't know how to pronounce things. Um, you never hear about it, but it's really, really important in how different strains of weed Uh, will affect you when you smoke it or when you eat it. So what CBD does is is it is a receptor antagonist. And I don't know if you know about how football works, but pretend that this guy here is uh, THC and he's trying to catch this ball and that guy's CBD and he's totally ruining his his ability to catch that ball. So what CBD does is it interferes with THC's ability to do what it's trying to do. Um, And sometimes it helps it out a little bit and sometimes it inhibits it, but uh... mostly what it ends up doing is it makes you sleepy it makes you stoned um, in the way that THC contributes to anxiety CBD gets in the way of THC causing you anxiety and actually calms you down but then it calms you down to the fact that you get couch locked and you can't leave your couch or maybe you just play video games all the time um, and it's, it's really good for pain relief so it turns out that most any kind of uh, marijuana strain, there are a bazillion of them, um, they can be broken down into the ratios of THC to CBD. So something that has a whole lot of THC in it will make you like really high in a cerebral way and maybe you'll be excited and maybe you'll be creative um, and maybe you'll want to like go out and do things. Whereas if you have a lot more CBD in it, you're more likely to kind of hang out and play video games and maybe talk to your friends about whether we're all seeing the same color red at the same time, I don't know. (laughs) So something like uh, sativa has a really high ratio of THC, THC to CBD, which is why it makes you super high and trippy um, in this sort of way. Uh, whereas indica strains have more CBD in them, so then they end up making you sleepier and making you a little bit more relaxed. So you think I know everything now that I know about THC and CBD, and so do a lot of 14-year-olds on the internet. So I spent so much time reading forum posts by basically babies on the web. And they're always like, oh man, so my friend Steven, he got some weed and he put it on top of a brownie and he ate it. And then the next day he came to school and he was so fucked up. And I just wanted to roll in there and be like, that's not true because I know about science. So it turns out that when you have Like, if you have, like, the freshest, most awesome marijuana that you get, it actually doesn't have any THC in it or has a very, very little bit of THC in it, which is what you need in order to get high. What it has, I know, it's disappointing. What it has instead is something called THCA, tetrahydrocannabinolic acid. Um, And you're like, well, it's almost THC. It's just also an acid. Um, So the thing is, is THCA is just thc with something called a carboxyl group attached. Um, and that's what a carboxyl group looks like, it's COOH. And basically all the carboxyl group is doing is preventing THC from acting in a way that makes you high. So THCA, um, the acid is not uh, psychoactive, whereas THC is psychoactive. Allow, allow me to analogize this with Twilight. So, <laughs> You're a CB1 receptor in the human brain. I don't care where in the human brain you are, but you really thirst for some THC. You want it more than anything. It's, to quote Twilight, it's your own personal brand of heroin. Watch the movies too many times. so. But the problem is, something's getting in the way, and that's a carboxyl group. So because that THC is currently tied up with a carboxyl group, it's THCA, so you're not getting high. So what do you do? Well, you have to light the carboxyl group on fire in order to free it. Um, this is called smoking weed. Uh, the, one of the main reasons why you, you smoke it is, sure, it's an easy way to get it into your body, but also the really high temperatures of the flame um, it's the, the fancy word is decarboxylization. Um, the THCA is decarboxylized, so the carboxyl group is turned into carbon dioxide and water and then you're left with THC, which can go in your lungs and go in your brain and then you get high and everyone's happy, or everyone's sleepy, either way. Um, but who here has ever accidentally set things on fire in their oven? Yeah, that's not food that you want to eat. And since we're here to eat food and not to just smoke weed, we have to figure out a way to decarboxylize without just setting things on fire. (laughs) Luckily, some scientists have figured out how to do this for us. Um, If you hold, basically, uh, marijuana at different temperatures for different amounts of time, you end up decarboxylizing some of the, the THCA. So according to this chart, if you have it at about 300 degrees after seven minutes, most of your THCA has been converted to THC. Uh, if you hold it at a lower temperature, like 200 degrees, it's gonna take an incredibly long time to convert all of your THC into THC. But hey, at like 250 degrees, pop it in the oven for about half an hour, and then bam, you have some really active weed that you can then, if you're 14, put on top of a brownie and eat it, and then be stoned whenever you go to school. Um, Interestingly enough, old dry weed that has been sitting around for a while, over the course of a year, if you just like leave your weed in, say, like a, a crafts box in your room, um, over that time, much of the THCA will spontaneously turn into THC. So if you have a bunch of like real shitty weed laying around that you've been like, I'm never going to smoke that weed, and it's been sitting there, for, you could smoke it. Yeah, that would probably be an easier way to do it. Or you could just eat it and then you would be fine, I guess. I don't know. But so basically what you have to do is you bake your weed and that gets the THC um, activated. Because, for example, Sarah's brownies, or not brownies, uh, meatballs, like you simmered them for like half hour or so and the internal temperature of the meatball wouldn't actually get up to, you know, 250 degrees. So there's still all of this THCA that was locked away in the weed that she was eating instead of it being THC. So if you don't prepare your weed beforehand, you end up not getting as high as you could be. (laughs) But hey, back to the, the hashish fudge. So what it says there is the spices should be dusted over the mixed fruit and nuts and kneaded together and one of the spices is weed, yes. Now, generally speaking, people don't like the taste of marijuana. Um, and I, I think that what, what people generally go for is you need some sort of way to... Also, you're using, like, really shitty weed generally, so it has, like, seeds and stems in it. And who wants to put seeds and stems in their mouth? Nobody. So what you want to do is find some sort of compound you can put the, the THC into and then strain off the plant material. Luckily, I have a thing about THC solubility. Solubility is just something's ability to dissolve... Um, so if you put a bunch of weed in water and let it sit around for a while, nothing would happen. THC isn't water soluble, so you're not gonna be drinking weed water. <laughs> but if you put it in alcohol, yeah, sure. You have pretty, pretty THC full alcohol. If you put it in a fat, you get a ton of THC absorbed into the fat and then you can eat the fat and then you'll have all the THC you want. Now for water solubility, cannabis tea is popular. I don't know why, because it doesn't really get you high because THC isn't water soluble. So instead, you're just drinking the flavor of marijuana without too much of the fun benefits. I don't know. On the other hand, you have things like Green Dragon, which is not actually a Green Dragon. It's a, um, like when you take Everclear or any high proof alcohol and you steep marijuana in it, and that actually will work. But it's not as fun for cooking. Like you can make a tincture and you can put it in your food But what we're looking to do is make canna butter, which is the incredibly catchy name for cannabis butter, where you simmer uh, marijuana in butter for a while and then your butter turns green and you put it in food. So it's incredibly easy to make canna butter. You just take butter and you melt it and then you put weed in the butter and you simmer it for a while, anywhere from 20 minutes to 24 hours. Um, People have different measurements of how long you should do it, but generally speaking, the longer you keep it in there, um, the more potent your butter will be because the more THC that will be extracted. Also, it turns a really fun green color because of chlorophyll. So if you put it in your fridge, your roommates will know which butter they should or should not use. <laughs> but the big thing about when you do eat it is that the high from smoking is totally different from the high that you get from eating. So you have to watch out for that. Because when you smoke, smoking, <laughs> smoking vaporizes... Generally, I use a picture of Justin Bieber um, whenever I'm doing things about marijuana, but his face was always in the words, so it, it, didn't, it didn't work out. So what smoking does is it vaporizes the THC and it goes down into your lungs, and thanks to these things called pulmonary alveoli, which we can just call air sacs, I believe Sarah called them earlier, um, they are really good at absorbing things straight into your bloodstream. So when you breathe in, um, like a marijuana smoke, within three to five seconds, all of the THC has been absorbed by your body. Um, It gets absorbed quickly. Like when you hold it there for a really long time, it's not actually doing that much. And so the the result of this is the high that you get from marijuana is like a hundred meter dash where it comes on from smoking it. It goes very, very quickly. Um, Your high peaks in 15 minutes to half an hour. And then after, you know, two or three hours, everything is gone. Eating is the opposite of that. Um, So the, the problem with eating is, well, the up and the downside to eating is that when you put something in your body, it takes time to work its way through your digestive system. So it hangs out in your stomach. It moves into your small intestine. And the small intestine is great at absorbing things. It just takes a really long time. Um, So it's not as convenient, it's not as effective um, in the short term. And so it's much more like running a marathon. So your high peaks two to three hours after you've eaten your food, and then it takes uh, six to eight hours before everything is completely gone. So in theory, you you could eat a pot brownie, and you could smoke at the same time. And as your smoking high was... 100% 100% gone, that would be the beginning of your edible high. So basically, it's like a time bomb because you don't know how high you're gonna be until two or three hours after you have eaten what you're eating. Because like, if you smoke something, you're like, oh, I'm not that high, I need to smoke some more. But if you eat a brownie, you're like, all right, I'm gonna wait two hours and see how high I'm going to get. So dosing is really difficult. Um, when you're looking at recipes for can of butter on, on the internet, people are like, put an entire ounce in a stick of butter. But that's <laughs> fucked up. Like, it's terrible. I'm like, who here likes brownies? Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh, like, two people. Great. So the thing is, <laughs> whenever you eat brownies, you don't want to eat just one brownie. Like, if I had a whole big thing of pot brownies in front of me, I'd eat like 20 of them and then I would be dead. Except I probably, <laughs> probably not because it's not, it's not poisonous. Um, so what I did was I decided I was going to have a dinner party where everything I made was going to have weed in it. Yeah. Right? That's an actual picture of the party. So the idea is that now, that now we know how to activate THC, now we know how to get it into food, now we know what to expect, so now it's time to actually have a dinner party. So I chose to make Ethiopian food for this dinner party. Um, for, for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason is because uh, a really important ingredient in Ethiopian food is called niter kibi. And what it is, is it's a spiced clarified butter. And it's spiced in that you put like onions and garlic and basil and cumin and other things in it. And I was like, hey, why not weed? So you just toss in another flavor into this spiced butter. A ton of this butter goes into every dish. And then, you know, suddenly every dish is full of marijuana. So also it has a lot of spices in it. So if it tasted terrible, then it would be covered up by all these other spices. So step one, marijuana. Got some marijuana. Um, if I ate this marijuana, would I get high? No. Maybe, but no. Because it's all, of, all of the THC is locked up with the, the carboxyl group. It's all THCA. So what do we do? We decarboxylize it. Uh, I put it in the oven for about 20 minutes at 250 degrees. Um, The best thing about this is it's really easy to grind up after that because it gets really dehydrated. Then I had to infuse it into butter. Instead of using normal butter, I used ghee, um, which is clarified butter, really popular in Indian cuisine. The best thing about ghee is that the smoke point is elevated. So it's really easy to burn butter, right? Whereas ghee is really difficult to burn. So because I had to simmer it for so long, I wanted to make sure I didn't cause any off flavors by cooking a lot of butter at a high temperature and suddenly it'd be burned and i have to start all over again. Um, so instead I, I used ghee and also you're supposed to use ghee anyway. So I simmered it for an hour or two at about 170 degrees. Because if I brought it up above 200 degrees in the same way that THCA degrades into THC, Um, THC will also degrade. It turns into something called CBN and which is not psychoactive and so what I wanted to do was keep it at a low enough temperature to keep my THC from uh, degrading even more and if I got up to like 350 degrees all of the THC would just like uh, vaporize away and then no one would be happy later on. Well the food would be good but so after I simmered it for like two hours I strained it not a very fun picture um, and then it was time to start cooking. So I had this fun, you know, kind of greenish-yellow butter, um, and I just started putting it in everything. You can just use it like normal butter. It's totally fine. Um, so we had three dishes. One was a spicy lentil dish. Um, it was, had a ton of, like, Ethiopian chili powder is the best way to describe it, berbera. And the berbera flavor just took over everything, so you couldn't taste any marijuana in it, and you were just like, oh, this is pretty good food but it doesn't taste very weedy. Um, the second picture is of uh, collard greens and cottage cheese, and it has a lot of butter in it, and then it also has this other super spicy spice called meat and I, like I always do, make things way too spicy, and everyone yelled at me, and they said, your food's too fucking spicy. Also, it doesn't taste like weed. Also, we can't eat it because it's too spicy. <laughs> very sad, um, and then the one on the far right was a cumin cabbage dish which I had high hopes for kind of having the flavor of the weed come through in the end and kind of like work with the cumin and the cabbage. And it just, it didn't really taste very weedy either. So I was like, no one's high. We've eaten all of this food. Maybe nothing worked. Like it didn't taste like marijuana. So it's time to start cooking more. So what I did was, the first thing I did was I made Bang, which was the uh, Indian thing that we talked about before. It's basically uh, almonds and milk and marijuana. You steep it for a while. Um, it, it, we, I didn't decarboxylize this, so I didn't have high hopes for it, but it tasted great. You would think that marijuana and milk and almonds don't sound like a marriage made in heaven, but it's, it's made in some sort of drug, drug-addled heaven, so it was pretty good. <laughs> But hey, there's a reason that we're having this talk and it's called Alice B. Toklas's Pot Brownies. So I did it, I made it. Um, I decarboxylized the marijuana in the oven. I mixed together the dates and the figs and all of the nuts, um, I spread it all together. Um, in the recipe, it tells you to mix a cup of sugar with a pat of butter. And a pat of butter is like a tiny amount of butter. So I just used a stick of butter instead. <laughs> Because, hey, it's fudge, it needs butter, right? Man, it was delicious. It was amazing. Um, the sample that we have for you at the back tonight is actually this minus the weed. I know, I know. I don't want to go to prison, so... Um, it's actually really good. And even when it did have the marijuana in it, it still it still tasted great. But here's the thing. Everything tasted great, but, like... I wasn't high. Sure, I started eating after everyone else did because I was still cooking while the dinner party was getting started. Um, but I was just like, I'm not high. This is so sad. And then someone was like, Soma, it hasn't been two hours at all. And it was Because originally I wasn't really going to eat anything because I was busy cooking. And then I just started eating more and more and I was like, I'm not high yet. I'm just gonna keep eating. This is fine. And then I got high. <laughs> I was ushering some of my friends out of the house because I was like, I'm real tired. And then suddenly it was like, oh my God, I'm so high right now. And I was high for a really long time. And, uh, And then I was like, all right, I'm going to bed. And I just kept waking up in the middle of the night and every time some crazy new high thing was happening. Like, someone was doing something in the recycling bin, and I was like, don't worry. It's just the recycling, but what are they doing? And I woke up in the morning, which was probably not eight hours later, and I was just like, relax. I'm going to get some work done. Then I called in sick to work. But no, no, I was just busy. Don't worry. My back hurt. So lessons learned um number one sativa is your crazy weed indica is your sleepy weed um sometimes it's hard in a place like new york we're not on the west coast so we don't really get to pick and choose our weed in the same way that other people do but everyone's so sad i know it's sad um so you don't really get to pick and choose the same way that you would be if you lived in california or colorado or something but if you do have the chance to kind of pick your strains be really appreciative of it because you can seek out a certain kind of high that you're looking for based on the strains and based on like THC and CBD content. Um, Alice B. Toklas's recipe, somewhat of a sham. Um, I put mine in the oven, hers never got cooked. Um, It wasn't even her recipe and also, I mean I guess she wrote her cookbook somewhat. No, she stole all the recipes, so she was a sham. Carboxyl groups keep THC locked down, so never just try to eat a bunch of weed because that is something for high schoolers to do and we are all very educated and old and we understand that we have to decarboxylize our THCA to turn into THC. And finally, if you eat a lot of of magic or special food, keep your bed nearby because who knows what's going to happen in two to three hours.
0: (laughs) The end!